Marini's Media. Totally Football Show Summer Special. Today, and I'll see you later as Sparkling Sevilla send Roma Homer and roar into the Europa League quarterfinals. While Wolves pack for Germany too into the Europa League last eight with that narrow 1-0 over Olympiacos. It's Sevilla for them next. How will Nuno's side fare? And what awaits Friday evening as the Champions League returns? Man City facing Real Madrid, Juventus hosting Lyon. We'll have our thoughts on that, plus Arsenal, why the Gunners are strapped and have given staff the bullet. All that and more in this Totally Football Show Summer Special in association with Paddy Power. Friday the 7th of August. Met men say we're in for a scorcher, but we've got some cool heads for you here on your Totally Football Show Summer Special with Julian Laurence. Hello, James. Hello, everyone. Hello. And also here supplying some much-needed Euro flavour, Daniel Story. Yes, James. Hello. Daniel, you're in the Midlands. Jules, you're in Turin. I am indeed, James. I've landed tonight for the game tomorrow between Juventus and, and Lyon. Well, we'll catch up on all that later on as the Champions League gets back underway. Uh, but right now, uh, the Europa League final eight are sorted. Eight teams, seven different countries represented. None of them are France, of course. But the, the big news... Uh, on this Thursday evening is that Wolves are in there and due to be facing Sevilla, who put out Roma earlier on on Thursday. Shall we start with events at Molyneux? Jules, you saw this, did you? You were, you were, you were in Turin in time to, to catch this. A tale very much of two keepers, no? Uh, Bobby Alain and Reed Patricio. You're right. We could we could summarize the game like this. I feel a bit for Bobby Alain, who's um, a French goalkeeper who moved to Olympiacos last summer from from Dijon, who is a really really good guy, one of the good ones, who has a quite a very interesting story as well for the people for the listeners who don't know. But his both his parents are deaf. Uh, he learned at a very young age the uh, the language of signs because that was the only way he could communicate with his mum and dad otherwise you know it would have been very difficult and he, I think he saw it as a gift and that's that's the way he's explaining it as well when you speak to him and and he wanted to share that gift so he's right now the the goalkeeping coach if you want for the um, the deaf uh, French football team he's also done a lot of uh, courses for people who uh, wanted to learn the, the language of science and things like that but tonight, I mean, he obviously considered the penalty very early on in the game. He made a, a couple of good saves through the game, but he's true that that one, I think, uh, for his first game of the season as well, would not have gone the way he would have wanted, really. Mm. This was him making his European debut because the first choice keeper, Jose Saar, uh, was out injured. Uh, Daniel, it, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a mistake for that early Wolves penalty, yeah. which proved decisive. It was a really nervous first touch, which kind of sent the ball miles away from goal and yeah Daniel Pedence kind of well spotted the opportunity to chase him down and then he kind of compounds the error by I guess clumsily barging into Pedence I, I think he went down pretty easily but it was never going to be overturned because I don't think Alain was getting the ball and it was so clumsy and you did feel for him because he just he looked like he wanted the ground to swallow him up and yeah as 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 Jules says he did actually make some good saves but but that was the defining moment in the tie Absolutely. It was uh, it was not long after that that Olympiacos thought they got one back. Uh, but a, I guess from a Greek point of view, pretty controversial VAR call saw that, saw that call back for offside. How did you feel about that? 
Yeah, I thought El Arabi was, I, mean, I think it was the right call, but it was very, very, I mean, there was not much at all in it. And I thought Doherty, watching it live on the television, I thought Doherty covered him. And it's only then with the line that you see that, okay, maybe for a few centimetres, El Arabi was just ahead. I, I was a bit disappointed by Wolves in the sense that I thought once they took the lead, I really thought they were, they were going to control the game easily. And, and Olympiacos, who, let's be honest, are not a very good team. They did really well in Greece this season. And yes, they knocked out Arsenal, but they got quite lucky, I thought, in that game. And I, and I really thought in that second leg that Wolves would walk over them. And I thought they show a bit of fragility, Wolves, that I didn't really see them this season or even last season, certainly not uh, since Nuno you know, took over and since they've been in the Premier League. In midfield, Moutinho and, and Ruben Neves at times had no control at all on the game and, and they considered some big chances. I mean, Rupert Tricio, as we said earlier, had made two huge saves, especially the header towards the end that could have changed the games completely. So I was a bit disappointed by the lack of control. I thought they would control the game a bit more and I think against Sevilla... They, they could be in, in, in trouble because of that. All right. Daniel, what did you think? Was that slightly Wolves' plan to sit back and, and let Olympiacos come at them once they had the lead? Possibly. I think, I think what kind of undermined them is that, that Adama Traore had one of his hugely infuriating games. He has cut out those type of performances, I think, largely over this season. But the ball just wasn't sticking. You know, he was trying to take on his man and losing it. He was going to ground easily to try and win free kicks and not getting them. And... I think that if that was Wolves' game plan, having taken the lead, it's kind of completely undermined when Traore doesn't play very well. It shows how reliant they are on him on the counter because, you know, Jimenez is brilliant at holding the ball up, but he gets pretty isolated if if Traore picks the ball up from deep and then loses it before halfway, which was happening more often than not. Um, and that, as Jules says, that just invited pressure. It meant that the two central midfielders were kind of getting swamped as soon as Olympiacos won the ball back. Jules, uh, Matt Honeyman uh, says that he's uh, he spotted Karen Burr on the uh, sidelines there uh, uh, alongside the Olympiakos bench and has discovered that he's now a strategic advisor to the Greek champions. What does this entail? He's a, sporting di- he's a sporting director, okay. basically. That, yeah, that's what he means. I mean, I, th- I think he finished his career there, suddenly played towards the end of his career, stayed in very good contact with the, the, the owner of the club, uh, like Francois Modesto, who was his predecessor at the club who also finished his career there uh, the French centre-back and and I saw Karen Burr I've got maybe I'm a, a bit old-fashioned on that I've got an issue with sporting director being on the bench I don't think that's their position I don't think they should even be allowed to be there but we see with uh, Salihamidzic uh, a Bayern for example who is very often on the bench and I'm, I'm struggling a bit even from a manager point of view to understand why you would want I mean maybe you don't have the choice because arguably he's your boss but still to you know, to have him there, I, I don't know. It was a bit strange. And I, I, I did see him on TV as well and I was surprised he was allowed on the bench. Right. I, I must admit, I don't have strong feelings on the matter, Daniel. <laughs> no, uh, not particularly. Um, right. It should be said that, that Olympiacos' owner is is also the Nottingham Forest owner and there's been some some rumours, although it sounds like Sabri Amici is going to keep his job, there were some rumours that we might be looking at former Olympiacos managers as potential replacements. Okay, um, well, what kind of... Well, Mark, Marco Silva was was Olympiacos manager. That was one name that was mentioned. Um, I think that's probably slightly out of Forest's budget at the moment. Uh, and probably Marco Silva would prefer to go abroad to redeem that reputation. But yeah, um, yeah, it was interesting to see Maranakis in the stands because a kind of, as a Forest supporter, you, you sort of forget that he's got a, a, a far more successful club than he also looks after. 
If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, take out a 30-day trial to see their unrivaled coverage of each and every Premier League club by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Ojo, 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 llega Reguilón, Reguilón pisando área, que sprint de Reguilón, gol, 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 del Sevilla. Chus, as you mentioned, it is Sevilla who Wolves will be facing and they, tough though Olympiacos proved, Sevilla might well be another level of opponent, particularly given their performance earlier on, on Thursday, when they completely outplayed Roma a 2-0 in a one-legged last 16 game away in Germany. Best side we've seen so far, Daniel? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously they have the the Europa League pedigree and, you know, it should be said that Roma have been in in some form, particularly away from home recently. I I was impressed by Sevilla. I I was actually more disappointed with Roma than I was impressed by Sevilla, I have to say. I think they probably will knock out Wolves, but... Uh, that's a very tired Wolves. But I think Wolves will probably put up more of a fight than, than Roma did, which is strange because, as I say, Roma have looked pretty good recently. They just they just looked... Defle- they, it seemed to me, if I, if I hadn't have known, it looked like they were playing a pre-season friendly game rather than a you know arguably the biggest match of their season. Mm. Yeah, they looked miles off, off the pace against a slick and speedy, a severe side. Uh, the man who wrote the book on Sevilla and Sevillano football is Colin Miller... And he joins us now on the line for his reaction to their performance uh, in Germany this Thursday and what they might offer against Wolves. Colin, thanks for joining us. Uh, First of all, that was quite something, that severe performance Thursday evening. Yeah, it was really, really dominant. It was really impressive. And I think that you guys on the pod have spoken in the past couple of weeks about what sort of teams would have the best advantage I suppose coming into these European matches in terms of when their leagues ended and I think maybe you saw a little bit of that tonight uh, certainly physically I think Sevilla were much better than Roma they were much sharper obviously uh, La Liga had ended two weeks prior to Serie A but also I think in terms of their the tactical shape that Lopetegui uh, implemented was really impressive too um, they completely smothered Roma they didn't give them a chance and it was a really really dominant performance I think uh, just just three obviously it was a 2-0 win but it could have been more you know they hit the post twice they had the Jules Koundé goal narrowly um, disallowed for offside so yeah I, I think it's, it's one of the it's one of these performances from Sevilla that they always seem to produce at this end of the season and actually when I was when I was last on the podcast I said that uh, Julian Lopetegui was he was actually under a little bit of pressure but he's now guided them to 18 matches unbeaten in all competitions. And that's a Sevilla club record. It, I think stretches back to 1935, which is before, before the Spanish civil war. So this just, this shows how, how much he's inspired them since the break. They've won six of their last seven matches. Obviously they're in the champions league next season, but for Sevilla, the Europa league, as we all know, it's a, it's a very special competition for them. And, and if they can, if they can win another one of those, you know, that's, that's going to make this a really, really successful season for them. Well, the kind of pressure they put, Roma under. Uh, do you see them bringing that to the clash with Wolves on, on Tuesday? How do you think that game's going to go? It's going to be one of those games, like, we, we all know what Wolves are about, and they're going to be a very tough team to beat um, in a cup competition, but Sevilla are, are very similar in terms of the setup and how they play. The formations are a little bit different, but what's going to be really interesting in this game, I think, is going to be how Jesus Navas and Sergio Reguillon, who obviously scored that fantastic uh, individual goal um, against Roma, how they get on, because 
from watching the Wolves Olympiacos game, I noticed that Wolves probably struggled a little bit um, to block out the crosses. And, and Sevilla are a team who who really do like to use the width of the pitch. And Luke de Jong, who doesn't start tonight, is usually uh, their target man, and they sort of centred around him. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Navas and Reguilón get on. And obviously for Wolves, uh, it was a Johnny Otto went off uh, with an injury in tonight's game, and they had to change it around a little bit. So how that, how that pans out, I think, is going to be very important too. But yeah, I mean, this Sevilla... They're, they're always going to be tough to beat. Uh, Lopetegui, his his main goal essentially is to make his sides really, really fluid, really, uh, really competent in terms of how they how they understand each other and how how they move about the pitch. And I think that was evident against Roma. Um, obviously, they had a little bit more time to prepare that, but I think they're going to be going into this Wolves game not under any false pretenses, but I think they're going to be confident that they can pull off another result. A severe loads of people might be now tipping them for a sixth victory in this competition after the performance you've seen so much of them what flaws might there be what might see them come undone between now and a potential final I think that Sevilla's main problem all season really has just been a lack of a goal scoring threat in the final third their build-up play is very impressive and they've got a lot of flair players and the likes of Everbenega in the middle of the pitch controls the game very well but I mentioned Luke de Jong earlier. He didn't start tonight. He's only got six uh, La Liga goals all season, and he's he's come out under a lot of criticism from uh, Sevilla fans. A lot of people thought that Lopetegui had been too loyal to him. He's missed quite a lot of chances. Um, they put in Yusef Naziri, who was a, a January arrival, and again, he's he's a player that's a bit raw. He's not. He's they don't have a thirty goal a season striker there, and and obviously the, the one off games they're going to be a very sort of tight tactical battles over a couple of days. So. It's going to be up to Lopetegui to, to sort of continue this momentum that he's built up. Um, but I think they're going to be a very hard team to break down. We mentioned Reguillon and Navas and the fullbacks. But you looked at the centre-backs tonight. Diego Carlos, who's been linked with a host of Premier League clubs this summer. And I think he could go for big, big money if, if a club comes in for him. And Jules Conde, who's a very, very promising um, French uh, central defender as well, who's really, really impressed this season. So they're going to be very tough to break down. Colin, I know you don't want to say, but but you know that all the success from Sevilla comes from from France and from Ligue 1, obviously, and all the players that they get from us. Uh, you <laughs> mentioned Koundé and you, and you mentioned Diego Carlos and Lucas Campos again tonight. I thought was fantastic. I mean, I don't know what they give him to eat in Sevilla. I don't know if the food is different to what he had in France. I saw him arriving at Monaco when he was really young. Then he went to um, to Marseille as well, and and he had a good season last year yes. in Marseille but nothing like what we've seen this year and you know when Wolves look at the Sevilla team and how to play them and how to to counter them really I think if you can keep Lucas Ocampos quiet I think you've 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 taken a, a big part away of what Sevilla is about this season because he's been so good for them yeah absolutely I mean Ocampos has been an absolute revelation he's, he's comfortably been one of the best La Liga performers uh, in the entirety of the campaign and I mentioned the lack of goal threat in terms of a, of a central striker but Ocampos certainly provides that I think he's on 14 mm. or 15 goals yeah 15 uh, I think yeah 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 across the campaign he's, he's really really been impressive and I think you, you saw tonight as well the sort of dynamism that he offers he, he's direct but he offers a threat from, from wide he, he can go this way and that he's really really impressed and you mentioned there as well I think he's had five or six clubs and he's only he's only 24 I think so this is a guy who's got a big future potentially ahead of him he's, he's coming into potentially the prime years of his career and he really seems to have found his feet and found his potential 
at Sevilla. And again, it's like so many players. And you mentioned the the Liga connection and Diego Carlos as well came from Nantes last season. I wasn't aware of him at all, but he has been arguably the standout central defender in La Liga um, alongside Sergio Ramos. You know this season. I mean, he's he's just a rock. Um, he's he's been so consistent, and I don't know exactly if it's the Lopetegui sort of coaching in terms of how he gets the best out of these players. And obviously, Monchi's meticulous, and how he how he scouts how he scout network sort of brings in the best of, of European talent and further afield. But no, they've got an absolutely brilliant team this at the minute. Colin Miller. Uh, as for Roma, I guess they really miss Chris Smalling, huh? Uh, just one shot on target. In the meantime, from the Jalarossi, uh, who do have some good news on this Thursday, or at least potentially it could be good news, because that uh, new owner, Dan Friedkin, that uh, James Horncastle was talking about in yesterday's show, that deal has now gone through for about half a billion pounds. Uh, absolutely massive. A measure, in fact, of how Roma's, you know, excuse the expression, global brand value has has grown through the Palotti years. And uh, let's hope he has a little bit more luck Kicking on with the new stadium, Dan Freakin. Right. Oh, by the way, we discussed managers turning into goalkeepers a few weeks ago and how few of them there are. Just so happens that Tuesday's wolves Sevilla game will be an all-goalie gaffer game. So that's something that's else to true. look forward to. That's true, yeah. Mm. Uh, now, elsewhere on Thursday in the Europa League, Basel added another goal to their tally against Eintracht Frankfurt, going through 4-0 against the German side. On aggregate, they will be taking on Shakhtar Donetsk on Tuesday. And by Leverkusen, a goal for them from the electric Musa Giabi, making their aggregate score against Rangers 4-1. A huge surprise is there. Bayer will be playing Inter on Monday. And Man United will take on Copenhagen also that evening. So the quarterfinals all sorted. Man United, Copenhagen, Inter, Bayer, Wolfsavia on Tuesday and Shakhtar Basel. Who's your favourite, Daniel? I think Manchester United are the favourites, not just because of the fairly handy draw they were given. Um, I just think they're the team with the best players and in the best form, which is a pretty boring explanation, not particularly controversial, but it would be interesting if, if we can see them against Lukaku again. That would be a really nice story and, you know, obviously Ashley Young and there's so yeah. many former Premier League players into at the moment that that would be quite a nice story. Jules, who are you tipping? Just to be a bit different, I think I go for Sevilla. Yeah. I think that they okay. I Colin explained it really well. That it's true that they like a, a big goal scorer, but I still think they've got a lot of talent. They've got good organization. They've got a good manager as well. I think Inter would be in the mix too, and 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 I would love to see Conte and Inter against United at some point. But uh, yeah, I would go for Sevilla. Good for you, Jules. Friday, the action will be switching to the champions as Juventus take on Lyon, watched by Jules, and Man City host Real Madrid. We'll be looking ahead to those games very, very shortly. Next up, though, four days on from the FA Cup triumph, let's check in on how the party's going at Arsenal, eh? Oh. This Friday night, two bitter rivals finally meet. A grudge match that's been months in the making. It started in the boardroom, then went to the courtroom. It's Man City in the Champions League. 
Yep, Man City are back in Europe, but here's a ruling that'll please all fans. Paddy Power have decided to give new and existing customers a £5 free bet on Friday's game versus Real Madrid. That's right, a £5 free bet on Man City v Real this Friday. Paddy Power. T's and C's apply. Online exclusive. New customers must deposit. One free £5 bet per customer. Opt-in required. Plus BeGambleAware.org. This is the Totally Summer Special by the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Arsenal staff, Saturday, all fired up from their FA Cup win. Four days later, just plain fired. Wednesday, the club announcing redundancies for about 10% of their staff, including the majority of their scouting department. The players who'd taken that pay cut in April to safeguard jobs are said to be furious. Are they right? And does disbanding the scouting network leave Arsenal sleek and streamlined for the future or just sucking at the teeth of Keir Jarabchin and co? Here's James McNicholas, The Athletic's Arsenal correspondent. First of all, the issue of the players and and this sense of betrayal, is that an unrealistic position for them to have? I don't think so, because they'd agreed to take that pay cut in April. It was a 12.5% pay cut at the time. Uh, That's been cut down to 7.5% as a consequence of their qualification for the Europa League. And it wasn't necessarily easy for Arsenal to get that agreement over the line. It was unprecedented in the Premier League. They remained the, the first and only club to take a definitive cut to their wages rather than a deferral. And Mikel Arteta himself, the head coach, ultimately had to get involved, made uh, a call to the team. And he spoke about the importance of the community, the club, the necessity of protecting other jobs. Consequently, when these redundancies were announced yesterday and the players were told um, after, I think, the all-staff call, which took place on Wednesday afternoon, there was some unhappiness from those players. And, you know, that has continued into today. You know, they feel, uh, as far as we understand it, misled. Um, From Arsenal's perspective, they say that this is a fluid financial situation, you know, that what they thought in April about what they might be able to do as regards jobs and the projections at the time is not necessarily true today. Um, And it is certainly the case that if you look at all businesses across many industries, there will be restructuring, there will be people losing jobs, as difficult as that is. I think the reason that it rankles with, I think, sections of the Arsenal fan base is this is a club with a billionaire owner in Stan Kroenke and KSC uh, with the capacity to, if they were inclined, uh, essentially make up the deficit here that Arsenal will will, will save by, by losing these jobs. Um, and, and I do have enormous sympathy with that point of view. It's It's clearly quite an emotive one, I think, for a lot of supporters as well. So what about the second issue then about the kind of jobs that are going the head of scouting, various heads of regional scouting, uh, with the sense that the club is increasingly moving to the opinion of, well, uh, in the popular caricature, one man, uh, Keir Jarabchian? Mm. Well, I think this is a a fascinating development. Um, Most of the jobs that Arsenal expect to lose in this redundancy period, they say are in kind of uh, administrative and commercial departments, but clearly the most high profile redundancies have been on the scouting side, principally Francis Kagiao, who is the head of international scouting, or at least was the head of international scouting, has been with the club for 24 years, uh, was a lieutenant to Arsene Wenger, Steve Rowley, is credited with spotting players like Hector Bellerin, uh, Cesc Fabregas. Uh, he was involved in the pursuit of Gabriel Martinelli, who of course was a breakout star last season. 
Arsenal have lost uh, two other very senior scouts in Brian McDermott, the former Reading and Leeds manager, and Peter Clark, who is their head of UK scouting. This was all on Wednesday morning communicated to them. And then as Thursdays played out, hour by hour, more regional scouts uh, who were on kind of consultancy arrangements with Arsenal have been told their services will no longer be required. Um, Now, that is not necessarily hugely unusual at the present time. You know, we understand a lot of clubs in Europe, given the financial landscape, will be making cuts to their scouting team. But we have not encountered anything quite on this scale. And I think when you set that up alongside some of the business Arsenal have done, we're all aware, I'm sure, of the stories regarding Willian. And we understand that is a deal that Arsenal do want to press ahead and do want to do. Uh, his agent is Kia Jarabchian, as is David Luiz, as is Cedric Suarez, represented by Kia. You know, it does make you wonder about how wide the pool of players Arsenal are recruiting from really is. Hmm. Scouting is obviously pretty important to any club with major ambitions. Hmm. Do you think we're going to be seeing, by the sound of it, a lot more of this kind of thing from other Premier League clubs? That's a really good question. And uh, all I would say is that Arsenal, as I say, asked their players to take a pay cut. Um, they remain the only ones to do so. And I th- imagine other Premier League clubs will be looking at the backlash to Arsenal's decision uh, and maybe thinking twice if there's another way that they could save maybe the few million pounds that these redundancies will ultimately reserve for Arsenal. From Arsenal's point of view, how would they frame uh, this decision? There is a sense in which, of course, like these redundancies are, are driven by the economic situation created by COVID-19. Uh, But you can look at it and say maybe Arsenal have sort of taken that opportunity for a bit of a restructure. Um, It does seem like the scouting department was undergoing, you know, a a degree of review by Edu, who's an incoming technical director. uh, And there is a potential that he will want his people in place. So I just I guess I agree with your view that having a, a good scouting department with connections in many different areas is absolutely key to that. And Martinelli is a great example. You know, he was playing in effectively the fourth tier of Brazilian football. These guys, there isn't really the data on them. There isn't really the analytics on those people. He had to be discovered by scouts on the ground watching him play in the flesh. Um, and Arsenal, if they don't have the resource to do that, well, that could be a big problem for them. Well, what a shame. Just a few days after, I think a lot of supporters felt that things were moving in the right direction again. This certainly doesn't feel like it's the right direction, but maybe I'm being unfair. Daniel? I think there's two separate points here. One is, if this is to do with a, a kind of overhaul of the scouting department, then then that's clearly a direction which Arsenal are perfectly allowed to take, probably free from extreme criticism I think or at least withholding that criticism until we see what the overhaul comprises of I think the thing that sticks in the throat of Arsenal supporters is that they they kind of sold this as a you know your club needs you uh, we've all got to stick together times are hard it's hard for us as well slightly small violin playing um, with the statement because that doesn't really stack up when you've got a, an owner worth 8.3 billion dollars and and you're also negotiating reportedly with both Willian and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang for kind of bumper contracts. I think that's what sticks in the throat a little bit. Um, and the sense, as you as you allude to, that four days ago everything seems rosy and supporters are getting a little bit tired of the, the suspicion that there's nothing quite like Arsenal for tripping over their own feet just as good news arrives on the horizon. 
Mm. On the subject of Stan Kroenke and his ability to shore up the club financially, presumably FFP would have some kind of bearing on that. It, 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 owners aren't allowed to just cover debts or, or make up shortfalls financially. No, although Arsenal are, are one of the most profitable uh, clubs in the Premier League. They are clearly going to be restricted in the transfer market, but I think it's probably fair to say that the the reported just under £2 million they're going to save per year from these redundancies are probably not the biggest sway in that. Maybe paying William £6 million a year might be, uh, or whatever cut Kia Jurabchian takes of that. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think that's the big thing. And uh, unfortunately, it could well be the first of many such stories at, at clubs in the Premier League and beyond. Well, uh, after this, let's move on to the return then of the Champions League Friday evening. Two games, Real Madrid uh, at Man City and Juventus-Leon. The winners of those two matches will be facing each other in the quarterfinals. Ooh. You're listening to the Totally Summer Special by the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Jules, are you pumped for Man City Real Madrid? I am. Yeah, yeah, I am pumped. Yeah, no, I mean, you're not, because you've actually tra- travelled all the way to Turin, <laughs> where you won't even see it, because you're going to be. These games are happening at the same time, aren't they? Yeah, I'll have a screen with the City the of City Real Madrid game, and I'll have an eye on the the pitch in front of me for the. All Euro right then. Game. All right. Well, let's come to Daniel then. Daniel, Real Madrid, two one down, and that's two away goals for Man City. Ordinarily, Man City being. Man City, you'd, you'd consider this unlikely, but perhaps not in this case because Real Madrid are Real Madrid. Yeah, and they're, they're a Real Madrid that's in a very different bill of health than when the first leg was played. You know, uh, before that, they'd they'd lost to Leganes, they'd got knocked out of the Copa del Rey by Real Sociedad, they'd drawn with Celta Vigo at home, they were second in La Liga behind Barcelona and a, a kind of creaking Barcelona. And, um, it felt like a, a pretty devastating blow to lose that lead and lose the home leg. But yeah, they're in a completely different frame of mind now, having in the end kind of cantered to, to La Liga title. And we know Zidane's history in this competition. We know that he considers uh, the kind of backs against the wall attitude that um, that his players have shown him over the previous three or four years. And he'll be looking to see more of it. I think we can kind of put the tie down to one thing and that's who scores the first goal quite frankly you know Manchester City have lost they've lost six of the last seven games in which they've conceded first the only exception of that was the first leg in in Madrid and there just seems to be a fragility about them that when things go wrong they they're unable to cope with that and it you know any Real Madrid goal in the first 20 minutes I think on on Friday and they will start to creak again particularly with no Sergio Aguero right no Sergio Ramos meanwhile for Real Madrid, but uh, Eden Hazard could be back, apparently, in full training now for the Merengue. City have kept just two clean sheets in their last 11 Champions League knockout games under Pep Guardiola. What about Guardiola and the Champions League? It's been a slightly disappointing season, even though they finished runners-up in the Premier League, but missing out on the FA Cup. This is the tournament that he hasn't won since back in the Barcelona days, 2011. This is the big target. Yeah, I think this is. I think it was from the beginning, really. I, I really wonder if he knew that having another season at 95 plus points, like the last two, 
he knew that that was impossible. I think that the psychologically the demands that that takes on, the degree of 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 excellence, the the performances that you have to put out through the whole season to be able to have another third season like that in a row. I wondered if he knew how difficult this would be and that the title, unless Liverpool had a really average season, that it was not for you know it was not for City, and that in that case you could focus on Champions League in a much easier way if you want. Uh, and and I think again, as much pressure as that adds to to Guardiola and to the players, but especially to Guardiola, I still maintain that that was the big priority. I think he would give anything to win this Champions League again, uh, whatever way he does it, uh, regardless of who he faces in the semis, in the quarters, in the final. You know, I don't. If he wins every time on penalties, he would be as happy as when he won it in 2011 and 09 when they were by far the best team in Europe. So I just think that. I wonder how he's approaching this game. I wonder if he's, if he's overthinking it like often he does or if he thinks, you know what, we're in the lead now, which was not the case after the Spurs game last season, after the Liverpool game the season before. And, and, and if he would go in a more simple way, OK, I'm going to put Gabriel Jesus in his normal position and I'll put Mahrez in his normal position and Sterling as well and I'll have a midfield three and I'll have a back four with... Laporte and Fernandinho and and instead of trying to think or overthink what he could do or what Zidane will do and who Zidane will play in midfield and if he does that and I can do this and this and that and then maybe that would work this time. Maybe so. I think it's a, there's obviously a, a, an interesting thing in terms of central defenders because he was playing Eric Garcia quite a lot towards the end of the Premier League season. It was, it, you know, he admitted on on Thursday that Eric Garcia is looking to run his contract down at Manchester City and either leave on a free or presumably they would now be prepared to sell him this summer, which does, as as Jules kind of says, that at least that kind of limits his options for overthinking that defence, which is generally the area of the pitch that he does overthink it. It it kind of figures that it has to be Laporte and Fernandinho now. Who's going to get the first goal, Jules? I think City would be on the front foot, even if they're in the lead. I think they will... I think they will look to have the ball and, and create chances. I, I do think that Real Madrid built their success this year on how strong defensively they were and a lot of that was done to Sergio Ramos. And I think the worst thing that could happen to them, even more maybe than Karim Benzema being out, was to have Sergio Ramos out for this game, really. And that red card in the, in the first leg, I think could cost them massively in the second leg because whoever Zidane picks to replace him, whether that's Edda Militao or, or Nacho, both of them have weaknesses. They have, you know, cons. Nacho has been injured so much. I think Eden Militao at, at times have been a, a proper liability. So whoever you pick, it could bring a lot of fragility to your defence. And I think that's maybe where the game will be won or lost, I guess. Karim Benzema, though, hey? Hey, best player in La Liga this season, I'm telling you. <laughs> will he be the best player Friday night? Alrighty. Oh, just on the subject of... Man City, I read that David Silva uh, reports that he might be heading to Lazio. That transfer is now beginning to take shape, which means he would be back in the Champions League next season for the uh, Bianco Celeste. All very, very interesting. Meantime, also taking place Friday night, and the game you're in Turin to see, Jules, is Juventus-Leon. Can Leon complete uh, the upset that they began back at the Group Armour Stadium in February. And we'll discuss that very, very shortly. First of all, though, here's Lee Price of Paddy Power. Thank you. Hello. Yes, Champions League is back, and I should never be surprised when Man City are odds on to win. They do beat most people, including UEFA, 
But even so, they are up against the Spanish champions. Still, two away goals are pretty handy, isn't it? And we're four to six that City win this leg too. It's priced at one to ten that they go through. We're very confident about Manchester City. Real Madrid are ten to three to win on the night and eleven to two to go through overall. It'd be some turnaround for them. But things are closer in the other Friday night match. Juventus are two to five to win the second leg, with Leon Price at seven to one to take it. So that's pretty one-sided. But the betting on who will qualify is a lot closer. Juve are 20-23 to go through. Leon are 9-10. Which means we favour the Italian side by less than 1%. Crikey. Should be worth watching. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, Jules. Friday night, Turin. Leon, 1-0 up from the home leg. We'll be taking on Juventus again. And what is in store for us here? Leon, first of all, they've had one official game, one proper competitive game in the last, what, five months now, is it? Yeah, exactly, James. How, how have their preparations been for this? I, mean, they, I thought they played well against PSG in the League Cup final uh, last weekend. They, they lost on penalties eventually, but I thought they defended really well with the back five, which... I think Rudy Garcia would play exactly the same team on Friday night with a back five, like he did in the first leg as well. I think they're, they're prepared to defend deep and to defend well and to work hard for each other, not to give too much away to Juventus and especially to Cristiano. I think they know that if Paolo Dybala is fit to start, and if he isn't, we'll have a huge in, obviously impact on the game. And also on their own performance, you, you could maybe expect if Dybala is not playing to, to play slightly higher up on the pitch and, and maybe have a, a bit more of the ball and, and see what you can do with it. But they certainly believe that they can, they can do it. They've seen Juve in the last few weeks being tired, uh, not being very good defensively, as we said, potentially with key players missing. And I think they fancy their chances, not, not to go and win 3-0 in Turin, but certainly to frustrate Juve enough to bring a bit of doubt in their minds, in Sarri's mind as well. They know how under pressure Sarri is. Uh, and they also know that if Dybala is not playing, if you defend well on Cristiano, which won't be easy, but certainly when Dybala isn't there, it's, it's more of an individual game from, from Juve's point of view. And individual, it's, it's only him really, Douglas Costa is also out. So you can really think, OK, if you keep Cristiano quiet in the game, if Dybala is not playing, then you'd be close from, from going through. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how when the draw was made, they were like, okay, well, we've got no chance pretty much over the two legs. Now, they played really well in that first leg, rode their luck a little bit in that second half for one goal lead. And suddenly Memphis Depay, who should have never been playing this game because he had that big knee injury in December, is now back firing in great shape physically as well. And with him, it's a completely different Lyon team as well. So I can see why they believe. I mean, the Juve, they do look a different side to the one that Leon would have anticipated facing. They score goals, but they concede loads, as you know we've been discussing. And Memphis Depay, Moussa Dembele up against them. It does look like a really dangerous game. On the subject of Paolo Dybala, word on Thursday is he is unlikely to start. Cristiano Ronaldo, meanwhile, with that big Champions League heritage and desperate, one would imagine, to feature in the final eight in Portugal... His manner, 31 goals so far this season, Jules. Yeah, I mean, you know, he bailed them out against Atletico uh, last season and and you just cannot 
kind of said I cannot win with them the game. I think there would be a lot of pressure on him. It's 24 years now that, that Juventus haven't won the Champions League. They've lost all those finals. He was clearly bought in for that. And for him as well, personally, if he was to win the Champions League with Juve, he would become well, only the second player in history after Seedorf to win the Champions League with three different clubs. So it would be a hell of an achievement. I think he knows that. I think Juve knows it. This is a tie that they should go through. They should win, really. I don't care what happened in the first leg. I don't care that they're tired. I don't care if Dybala is not fit to start. This is a, this is a game they should be winning and go through to the quarterfinals in Lisbon, which obviously would mean a lot to Cristiano. So I still think they're favourite, but... There's something in what they've, how they've been playing, in the relationship between Sarri and his dressing room, even even in, in Cristiano's frustration at times the, since the restart, for sure, that make you think that there's also a bit of negativity around for them. Right, three wins in their last nine matches. They've lost three of their last four in the league. Daniel? Yeah, I mean, just to put Ronaldo's Champions League knockout stage brilliance into some context. He scored more Champions League knockout goals than every other player in history, bar Messi and Raul have in the competition as a whole. Um, so, th- I mean, this is, it's, it's a very obvious So, sorry, more say. goals in the knockout than every... More goals in the knockout stages than anyone else has in the competition as a whole, bar Messi and Raul. Um, 65 goals, which is astonishing. And it's almost as if at this stage it becomes... Um, we know he's an individualist. We know he has is you know his incredible ego and a deliberate ego to kind of fuel this overperformance. But he can become only the second player to win six Champions League trophies after after Gento at Real Madrid, which is obviously a long, long time ago. And and he'll be thinking about that. He really will. He'll be thinking about. You almost get the sense and that he would he would almost prefer Paolo Dybala not to be there, so he could kind of drag them through by himself and. That is is incredibly powerful for a manager like Sarri who's under pressure because he he kind of can pass all that pressure on to Ronaldo. Everyone will be looking at Ronaldo, not him, for for once, and with all the pressure kind of building in the Italian media around him. So, yeah, I think he will. I I do. I think he'll score twice and they'll do it again. All right, Juve, who've been knocked out of this competition at the quarterfinal stage in the last two seasons, but in danger of not even making it that far. This time around, a huge Friday night then between that game and the clash at the Etihad. And of course, we'll be back to review what happens in those and look forward to Saturday's lineup, which is a bit spiffing too. Do make sure you join us for that, listener. For now, many, many thanks to Daniel Story and to Julian Laurent. Thank you. Thank you. And to Colin Miller and James McNicholas and producer Charlie, who stayed up all night literally doing this listener for you. Have yourself a great Friday. We'll be back with you soon. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.